Al Capone's last year could make for an interesting film if there's little poetry or transcendence in Capone and nothing even remotely close to the quietly devastating third act of The Irishman. That's from Lindsay Barr of Associated Press. That's right, I finally saw Capone since I'm such a gangster movie aficionado. It's currently on Amazon Prime. It's now free. I don't want to pay six bucks for it, so I watched it. It's dreadful. That'll be our featured review this week. We've also got, in honor of Capone, our Mount Rushmore bad biopics. Just biopics. You go, God, what were they thinking? Don't worry. We'll give our list for those. Uh, and, of course, the major news, the Emmys just happened, so we're going to lead with in a second. But also TIFF just happened, the Toronto International Film Festival. I pronounce it just the way non-Torontonians do. Toronto. Even though we all know it's two syllables. Toronto. And the second T is always silent. Someone tell Mike Breen, please. It's not Toronto Raptors. It's just the Toronto Raptors. Uh, anyways, we'll get to Tiff in a second. Big, big time news for uh, Chloe Jaw, Francis McDormand, Regina King, all doing very, very well. Uh, as always, thanks for checking us out here on Cinephile. Please do hit me up on Twitter, Adnan Svirk or Cinephile Pod. You can, of course, go to Apple Podcasts and please subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep the podcast going. And course, it's been a little bit of uh, a tough time here without movies in theaters, but now we finally have a little bit of movies in theaters, and at least we've got news, and certainly the fall movie slate I think will be quite good. So that is the good news for us moving forward. I also just picked up Made Men. Thanks to Robert Carnell, uh, one of the great followers of Cinephile. He always tweets me pertinent, interesting stuff. He's a fellow Kingston guy there in Ontario. So he tweeted me last Tuesday, hey, by the way, check out this book. And it's a new book called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. Went to Barnes & Noble, limited release. What does that mean? I can't pick up the book. Are you nuts? I, I went and bought Oliver Stone's book. I bought Charlie Coppin's book. A Goodfellas book is not available wide release. So I ordered it. Uh, they go with the postal service. Could take a week. I'm like, oh, I'm jonesing for this thing. Thankfully, three days. Ordered it on Thursday. I got it yesterday. I've already read 54 pages. It's 350 pages. Uh, Joe is going to try to get Glenn Kenny here on the podcast. He's an excellent film critic and the writer of the book. And I can already tell you some amazing stories. This past weekend, as a matter of fact, was the 30th anniversary of Goodfellas. Amazing to think about where that film was in September of 1990 and how it's changed so many of our lives since then. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Like I said, I'll be reading about that podcast. Excuse me, I'll be reading about that book on an upcoming podcast. I hope we'll get Glenn Kenny as well. To the Emmys we go. How about this? All virtual. I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a great job. The opening monologue, they have uh, obviously stock footage of audience members laughing and, you know, reacting to all of his jokes after he's like, of course, there's nobody here. Let's do this. They had a few people there, solitary members. Jennifer Aniston showed up, Anthony Anderson. Anthony Anderson a good bit, which is making Kimmel uncomfortable, which is a very uh, good nod to the fact Kimmel used the N-word in an old sketch and faced some heat for that. I thought that was a little risque. Jennifer Aniston's bit very funny. Fire extinguisher didn't extinguish as much of the flames as it should. That was also funny. Jason Bateman showing up. He was always funny. Uh, so I thought the presentation was actually pretty good. And by the way, very quick, 11.04, the Emmys were wrapped. Just in time to flip over to Sunday Night Football and watch the Pats and Seahawks. So I thought it was a pretty cool job. I think the ratings were dismal. Uh, I'm sure they always are. Every year you hear all the ratings went down again, ratings went down again. But you know what? 138 stars and 114 locations in 10 countries. Props to the Television Academy and ABC for getting it done. Uh, the big news, first and foremost, as a fellow Canadian, I'm so happy. Shit's Creek. Without a paddle, that's what Schitt's Creek was. They never won an Emmy. They're on pop. Nobody can even find pop in America. But they went to Netflix, and everybody binged the first four seasons and loved the show. And so this final season, they get this huge send-off. Previously, it won zero Emmys. And as I had predicted, they were going to win Best Comedy Series Actor and Actress. I did not expect 
along with Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara in Best Series, that Daniel Levy would win for supporting actors, the supporting actress would win for writing, for directing. I mean, no show has ever done this. You think of the greatest comedies of all time. You think of Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, still waiting for a Best Series Emmy. Seinfeld won one, if I'm not mistaken. It was always losing to Frasier, just ridiculous. I mean, Frasier's a great show, but come on, every year Seinfeld's going to lose to that? But think of MASH, think of Cheers, think of I Love Lucy. Nobody has done what Schitt's Creek did. I mean, just literally sweeping the competition in all the major categories. Incredible to see after 15 nominations, winning nine overall awards, and like I said, winning the top seven most important ones. And that's where the Emmys overall were kind of disappointing because a lot of it was chalk. Schitt's Creek won a ton. Watchmen won a ton, which I was happy to see, by the way. Nearly swept the limited series categories, 11 Emmys overall. And Succession, which Joe and I have said is the best drama on TV, Close runner-up, Better Call Saul. Succession virtually dominated the drama. They won seven Emmys as well. So I think the actual award winners weren't great, but the production, I give kudos to. Speeches were good. Mark Ruffalo, best speech of the night. He was very impassioned. You would have thought he was reading off a prompter. He was so fired up. But he won for I Know This Much Is True, which I previously reviewed here on Cinefile. I'm so glad he won. As much as I liked Hugh Jackman in Bad Education and Jeremy Irons in Watchmen, I thought Ruffalo was tremendous playing dual roles, so I was very happy to see that. Uh, most importantly, I was happy for Succession, winning Best Series, uh, winning Directing, winning Writing, Jesse Armstrong, great speech, mentioning all the unthank yous of people out there. And I was most happy for Jeremy Strong. I said, as long as him and Brian Cox I win, I'm happy. Uh, Brian Cox is tremendous as Logan Roy telling everyone to F off, but I thought Jeremy Strong in season two was nothing short of remarkable. A Dostoevsky descent into crime and punishment, just this guilt-ridden, tortured character all year, and then he finally gets to have his moment where he grasps back the ring, so to speak, in that unbelievable final episode, the final 10 minutes. So really happy for Jeremy Strong. I think he's a super talented actor, and uh, I'm really glad he won the Emmy as Kendall Roy. So that brings us to some of the snubs. I was disappointed to see Succession supporting players not winning. I mean, listen, Joe and I love Matthew McFadden, not the least of which because Joe is from Minnesota. And McFadden, I think, is a great actor because if you see him in real life, he's this charming, suave Brit. And you see him on the show, and he's the, the bumbling brother-in-law, Tom, who's folding under questioning and uh, clearly is being pushed along by Shiv in the areas he doesn't want to go, especially in the bedroom. Nicholas Bond, I don't think, is a big stretch as Cousin Greg, but I thought Kieran Culkin would win. So many great one-liners. He's really funny in the show. But instead, Billy Crudup wins. As my friend Claire Atkins said, I think Billy Crudup's probably embarrassed that he won. The morning show's not a good show. He realizes he's done better work. He actually was the best part of the show because he has these off-kilter line readings. I mean, Al, Alan Seppelmall is really funny. He tweeted, I want to watch the show that Billy Crudup's in because he was in a different show than the rest of them. But his show was actually pretty good. Um... So congrats to Billy Crudup, although I would have liked to see the Succession people win. I was also disappointed. Nothing for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, one of my favorite comedies on TV. I, I think Shalhoub winning is enough. As much as I love Shalhoub, I think he's won like at least two for this show, and he's won something like at least five Emmys. I think he won three for Monk. He's won a couple for Maisel. But I thought Alex Borstein would win for supporting actress. Disappointed she didn't win. That would have been her third, I think. And, I mean, listen, last year they picked up eight awards, including Shalhoub and Borstein, but lost in the major categories to Fleabag. This time they didn't even win supporting actors because they got swept up in the, uh, the Schitt's Creek. So on the Sunday night broadcast, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel wins nothing. Only in the creative arts categories do they pick up uh, four trophies, I believe Amazon did in general. Uh, the biggest shocker of the night, Zendaya winning for Euphoria. I thought it was going to be Jennifer Aniston who hadn't won in a long time for Friends. You've got Olivia Coleman, the incumbent, Jodie Comer, Sandra Oh, speaking of Canadians, a three-time consecutive nominee, and instead Zendaya for Euphoria, a show about a bunch of teen sex and drug use, becomes the youngest and second ever black woman to win the category. 
Uh, very good moment if you like surprises. Great to see Homeland was snubbed. I was happy about that in its final season. Netflix, by the way, gets a ton of nominations, 160 to HBO's 107, but not any major awards, which gets us to the point I'm most happy about, Ozark's dreadful showing, one for 18. They almost do what Mad Men did in 2012 when they went 0 for 17. Ozark, the Academy realized, a wildly overrated show. Only Julia Garner wins for supporting actress. Again, would have rather that not been the case, but what are you going to do? Uh, I guess she's good. And I, I would have had no issue with Laura Linney one, but again, Zendaya pulled off the upset. Um, so that's great news that that was ignored. And my last favorite moment was Randall Park in an alpaca. Fresh off the boat, always be my maybe. Joe loves the ladder. He goes on stage with an alpaca. And so he did this because he read an email too fast and thought he was going to present with Al Pacino. Any mention of Al Pacino, as is always my favorite moment of the night. Those are your Emmy Awards, your Emmy Awards recap. Joe, your thoughts? You know, I think Jimmy Kimmel was the perfect host in the age of COVID to handle this because he's so good at pointing out the absurdity of everything going on and he can keep the ball rolling. I thought from a technical standpoint, just logistically, what the producers went through just to make sure that everyone had cameras, recording kits, the trophies themselves, I thought that was really well done. But adding to your point earlier, the Emmys were, uh, they garnered 6.1 million viewers this year, which was down 12% in the overall audience from 2019 with uh, the hostless Emmy from last year that had 7 million people. But I'm happy for Schitt's Creek, happy for Succession, Jeremy Strong's outfit, uh, Regina King, I thought she had a great speech. But answer me this, Adnan, when are, is America going to be done with the Friends reunions, with the Friends talks? With the syndication, I see it all the time. They had it again on this Emmy, and I just could not have cared less about it. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Joe. What a tired bit. I like Aniston. Listen, she's a talented actress. She's very pretty still, but good God. There she is, and there's a Courtney Cox showing up, and all of a sudden there's Lisa Kudrow. Oh, you guys all live together? I'm like, okay, this is nonsense. Like, just lame joke. I'm with you. One of the, one of the, one of the bits that I definitely could have done without is that and all this friend stock. Oh, great. We're going to get like $5 million each and reunite for some nonsense on HBO Max. Congratulations. Enjoy your money. Nobody else cares about what David Schwimmer is up to or Matthew Perry, again, fellow Canadian. Um, as far as, yeah, like I said, awards I would have liked to see, I would have loved to see Mahershala Ali win. The funniest thing on Twitter, the great Rami Youssef, he tweeted what happens when you lose. And there's somebody, literally, they look like an astronaut wearing all the garb that you'd expect in, in COVID-19 times, holding an Emmy and waving goodbye. So if you win, there's somebody outside your door, they walk in and hand you an Emmy. If not, as he recorded it, they just wave goodbye. And you go, all right, well, there goes my potential Emmy as uh, Rami Youssef loses to Eugene Levy there for Best Actor. Uh, also, one last thought. Last week tonight, which is a show I like a lot, I watch it uh, every week, and in fact, I've mentioned here on the show, Rave Review, I am a little tired of it winning Variety Talk Series for this reason. I think it's like the fourth time they've won. It's a 30-minute show, and he takes a ton of time off. I think he does like 30 episodes a year. So I would like to see more props given to The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, because Colbert is cranking out five shows a night, even if it's 30 minutes now, whatever the hell it is. I think he's still doing an hour. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel Live definitely truncated it to 30, but I would like to see Kimmel or Colbert win, because those guys are doing a nightly show. And as somebody who works in television and works on a regular basis, I think that's a lot harder. If you gave me a once-a-week E60 documentary, I guarantee I'm going to kick ass. If I'm doing a nightly show, MLB Tonight, obviously it takes a lot more time. So I, as much as I like John Oliver, Joe, I'm tired of him winning every year. Give some love. I don't even watch Trevor Noah or Samantha B. but I'll take them winning. Sure, what the hell? I would like to see Kimmel or Corbett win in that category. 
Yeah, me too. And I, I think particularly Colbert, to your point earlier, he, he just... He, especially now with today's just world in general, he's doing it again and again. He was doing it from his home. And you're right, John Oliver, he goes from, I think, February to November, but it seems like as a John Oliver fan that every three weeks he's off for two weeks. And then something happens in the news, and I'm getting that recap from Stephen Colbert when I'm thinking John Oliver would kind of be, you know, where where is he right now? So, yeah, maybe Colbert will win next year after, you know, if, if, if this – if the Emmys happen again in this COVID world, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. All right, we'll get to Capone in a second. I want to talk about TIFF, my hometown, Toronto International Film Festival, generally recognized as the second biggest film festival in the world behind the Cannes Film Festival. Normally, and this was the 45th edition, normally you get 300-plus movies. I've been many a time. You know, when I was going to Ryerson there in college in 96, Pacino's Looking for Richard was there. You could get a ticket for, I want to say, 1050. And I believe movie tickets were about $7. Now, I mean, I've been gone for 10 years, but tickets were at least $20 apiece for a, for a movie. You try to get the passes, right? You get like the 10 for 150 used to be 10 for 100 So every year it's a very expensive festival, but you go there because these are prestige movies and either going to be Oscar contenders or movies you may not see again and you want to just check out some foreign cinema. So it's always an incredible experience. And this year, instead of 300 plus movies, there was only 50. Think about that. But you still have 137 accredited journalists, and the movie to watch is Nomadland. Chloe, it looks like Zhao, Z-H-A-O. It's actually pronounced Jaw. So Chloe Jaw's Nomadland, big winner. Best movie and best director. Generally, if you win TIFF, watch out. Joe's favorite movie, The King's Speech, won the Audience Award, The TIFF, which is the best film. Boom, won Best Picture. Um, Last year's Jojo Rabbit wins Audience Film Toronto Film Festival and is being nominated for Best Picture, seven Oscar nominations. That already means guaranteed Nomadland is getting nominated for Best Picture and has a good chance of even winning. That's where we are right now. The Oscars, rather than February being pushed back to April, I can already tell you Nomadland is the biggest contender out there. Uh, also won Best Director there for Chloe Jaw. It stars Frances McDormand, a woman roaming the Midwest in an RV. Also won the Golden Lion at Venice. That is their best picture. If you want to with the Golden Lion, well, Joker won Golden Lion a year ago and then had 11 Oscar nominations. So big news there in terms of Nomadland. It's going to be playing in the centerpiece, the New York Film Festival. Maybe Joe and I can snag tickets, but it's going to open in early December. So look forward to Nomadland. Another film I cannot wait to see, One Night Miami. Joe mentioned Regina King. She is uh, obviously, along with being beautiful, very talented. And this is her directorial debut. The story alone, I was hooked. Based on a play from 2013, uh, Kemp Powers. By the way, the adaptation of his own play, One Night Miami, won the most votes for Best Screenplay. So this is a good chance at a Best Screenplay nomination. A directorial debut, Regina King. The play imagines a fictional hangout between Cassius Clay later known as Muhammad Ali, along with Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown in a Florida hotel room in 1964. You talk about juggernauts, historical figures I love. I love the music of Sam Cooke. I cannot wait. Amazon plans to release the film this fall. So One Night Miami did very well. And also Pieces of a Woman, which I heard about and I heard it's very, very intense. That wins for Best Actress, Vanessa Kirby is the woman's name. She's a young mother struggling with the traumatic outcome of her pregnancy. I believe that film also stars, uh, what the hell's his name? I'll find it in a second. Pieces of a Woman, though. She won Best Actress in Venice as well. English language effort uh, from Hungary's Cornell Madruzzo. That's the name. So Shia LaBeouf, by the way, is also in the film. Uh, Netflix acquired the film, expected to plan a big awards push for Kirby as Best Actress. So you can look forward to that on Netflix, Pieces of a Woman. 
And the Wuhan coronavirus portrait, 76 days, won best documentary. Tiff always has some great documentaries, so look forward to that, 76 days. Uh, Tiff also opened with another documentary. Spike Lee's filmed the version of David Byrne's Broadway hit, American Utopia. Uh, but that didn't end up winning. It was 76 days. The documentary credited to directors Hao Wu and Weiji Chen, as well as a third anonymous director currently seeking U.S. distribution. So at least we've got an idea here of films that are going to be in the mix. Nomadland, One Night Miami, Pieces of a Woman all did very, very well when it came to the Toronto Film Festival. You're wondering, Nomadland, how'd that not win Best Picture? Well, Frances McDormand, Best Actress, excuse me, Frances McDormand was runner-up to Vanessa Kirby there for Best Performance. That's based on write-in votes. Mads Mikkelsen, apparently very good in another round as well. So MLK slash FBI, another documentary I'm looking forward to. That was number three in terms of the docs that were winning uh, laurels there as well. What do you think, Joe, those films? Oh, I'm excited to see to see all of them. Um, I, I, I can say this now. I have not seen American Utopia yet, but if it does not win Best Documentary at the Oscars next year, I'm done. I'm done with the Oscars. I love the talking heads. Absolutely love Spike Lee. David Byrne's amazing. And the 1984 um, concert doc, Stop Making Sense by the Talking Heads, I think is the best to ever be created, followed by The Last Waltz, followed by Led Zeppelin live at MSG. If it doesn't win, I'm out, Adnan. I love it. Joe's love of classic rock coming through. I know you're a big Dylan guy. That makes sense. Minnesota, I totally get that. But didn't know you're all in on the talking heads. So you're definitely looking forward to this. I'm with you on the last waltz. I, I'm not a huge fan of the band, but of course I love Scorsese, which is why I've seen the documentary. It's a great documentary. I mean, the, the night old Dixie died, which may not be a, maybe an appropriate song in today's tenor about the South, but it is a, <laughs> a, a great moment in the last waltz, even though maybe it's about a racist South. All right, so that's the story when it comes to Toronto International Film Festival. When we come back, I'm going to talk about Capone, the unforgettable gangster played by Tom Hardy in a new film on Amazon Prime. Plus, because it wasn't good, the Mount Rushmore bad biopics. That's next here on Cinephile. Capone is the one movie I watched this week. So it is lean right now, folks. I know. Movie theaters are back open. You say, okay, what else can I see besides Tenet? I had the same dilemma. And I looked at the movies playing at my local theater here in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and I'm like, meh, nothing really all that appetizing. I'm like, I'm not going to pay $13.50 to go see Russell Crowe in Unhinged. I hear it's mixed reviews. I hear he's just, you know, kind of off his rocker. I'm going to pass on that one. Not going to go see The New Mutants. There's really nothing much of interest. So what the hell? We turned our streaming back up. And whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime, they're going to deliver for you, right? So I said, okay, why not watch Capone? Even though I'm going to watch it with a jaded eye. 41% Rotten Tomatoes, 26% from the audience. I mean, watch out, right? By the way, shout out to my friend Sam Surface, who's a very constant listener here of Cinephile. She pointed out the assistant, which she disliked. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, check out the disparity between the audience and the critics. I think the assistant is at something like 87% from critics, and it's like 22% from fans. So probably most of you who heard my review of that film like Sam thought I was crazy. Uh, Capone, at least relatively on the same page as far as this is a bad movie, and guess what? It was. The 47-year-old Al Capone, after 10 years in prison, 
suffering from dementia, comes to be haunted by his violent past. At least on paper, it should be intriguing. You've got Tom Hardy. He's a great actor. We all know that. He played Bane. He was tremendous in Mad Max, Revolutionary Road. I love Linda Cardellini, the ageless Italian. Uh, Emmy nominated for Dead to Me. Loved her in Freaks and Geeks. Matt Dillon. Looks a little like Greg Amsinger of MLB Network. Love Matt Dillon. He shows up. He's always got a presence. Al Sapienza. So how do I know that name? Of course you know that name. That's Mikey Palmese from The Sopranos. I love Al Sapienza. I met him about a year ago, actually, right here in the Meadowlands. Awesome guy. Um, and he's playing one of Al Capone's best friends. Catherine Narducci. I met her a year ago here in New Jersey, in the Meadowlands, for Sopranos Con as well. Small role for Catherine Narducci, but she's awesome. But the story is, frankly, pointless. Josh Trank is the writer and director. And this movie just basically features... As I said, a dementia-suffering Al Capone. And I don't even know, by the way, how much of this is true. I, I encourage everyone to look this up and then let me know if it's accurate or not. But Al Capone, as we all know, went to prison for tax evasion. We all know this because we've all watched The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's film. And I did not realize this. The film opens by saying Capone, after whatever, how many years, five years, ten years, no longer a threat, they released him. So he lived in Florida the last year of his life. Didn't know that. I didn't know he was suffering from syphilis. Just banged so many girls, and that's why he's got this terrible dementia. And so a lot of this film, a lot of this film, features Tom Hardy in heavy latex, a couple of bad scars, and this is like he's in Pacino's Scarface, but as if Scarface is just like a, a crippled, pathetic human being. He spends much of the movie grunting and grimacing with a bunch of looks. I mean, I wish you could see my face, because I'm doing a Tom Hardy face, right? he's just like, the whole time. Uh, kind of lip upper curl, a little bit like Elvis style, old school Elvis. Just like, I you're a whore. Like half the time you can't even understand what he's saying, so you got to put the subtitles on. And then, it, then it, the subtitles keep showing me grunting. Capone grunts. Capone groan. Capone audible exasperated. I'm like, yeah, that, that's what this movie is. It's a series of groans and grunts of a guy stuck in a wheelchair, and either he's pissed off at the help around him, he's insulting his wife, he's calling her a bitch in Italian, or it's doing these like odd flashbacks. But again, it's not even flashbacks. I was hoping it'd be, all right, here's Capone as an 18-year-old, you know, uh, taken over the gangster role by Storm. But no, it's just like he's having hallucinations. And so Matt Dillon, spoiler alert, is an old friend of his, shows up. And it's good to see Matt Dillon. I think he's a terrific actor. Love Drugstore Cowboy. Crash never should have won Best Picture. That's not his fault, though. He's very good playing an L.A. racist, perverted cop, feeling up Thandie Newton in that movie. So Matt Dillon shows up, and like he's his friend, but he's trying to find out, apparently Al Capone has hidden $10 million, and he doesn't know where it is. You know, they go out fishing together, one of these aimless adventures. And later on, Matt Dillon, in one of these horrifying nightmare situations, cuts off his own eyeballs and hands them to Al Capone. He's like, with these, you can go find the money. And I'm like, so not only is this movie pointless, and there's no real plot, it's literally a guy who shits himself. Like 15 minutes in, Al Capone's with Linda Cardellini, and they're not looking to get it on. I mean, they're just kind of cuddling. And also, he's like, oh, God, Al pulls out the blanket. Boom. You just see crap everywhere. You're like, oh, my God. This is what I'm watching. This movie, but that is apropos because this movie is a giant turd. There's no point to it. There's nothing interesting about it. There's nothing engaging about it. I didn't learn nothing about Al Capone except for the fact he was a disaster in the final year of his life and apparently had a lot of money and ordered people around but was losing his mind and screaming at the time. And then the movie gets really ridiculous because I mentioned Scarface. That's right. The ending is he grabs a gold gun and starts channeling Tony Montana and starts shooting up the people on his compound. It doesn't kill nearly as many people as Tony, it should be said, but it kills at least a handful, including one of his alleged friends. He says, don't you know him? Yeah, I know you are. He's always got the cigar in his mouth. Thankfully, for the last 15 minutes of the movie, his son, who he doesn't recognize, gives him carrots. So now he's chewing on carrots rather than cigars. I know you are. And then with that gold-plated Tommy gun, guns down his friend. 
It's a pointless movie. I'm giving it one Maple Leaf. Avoid Capone, even though as of a few months ago, you had to pay six bucks for it. It's now free on Amazon Prime. If you like gangster movies like I do, trust me, just go watch Al Capone and the Untouchables. That's a much, much better film. Joe, your thoughts? And then when you were watching it, do you think Hardy had a feel of like, yes, this is definitely going to give me an Oscar nomination. I'm going to get so much buzz for this. Do you think Trank, the director, had that thought as well when you were watching it? No doubt about it. I, what I was thinking was like, Hardy's probably thinking, you know, he's this good-looking guy, English brute, but he's, he's, he's interesting. He's a good-looking guy who wants to be as ugly as possible. Let me just put a mask on in Mad Max. Let me put another mask on his bane. Like, let me just cut up my face and look like a disaster. In Locke, let me make a one-person one movie driving a car, and that'll be interesting. I mean, at the very least, he, he's not going to make a bunch of romantic comedies. Like, Tom Hardy wants to take chances, and I think absolutely, he's sitting there in that makeup chair going, all right, four hours of makeup, heavy prosthetics, I'm playing one of the most iconic gangsters, perhaps the most iconic gangster in American history, and I'm going to have this growl and grunt, I'm like, this is real method acting, and I'm like, no, this is garbage. Because even if it's an interesting actor, even with terrific actors, you have to have a plot. You have to have a point. And that's the biggest thing I would ask Mr. Trank. What was the point of this movie? Because I see absolutely no point to it. Richard Brody of New Yorker, the ghastly contrasts are built into the well-conceived story, but Trank neither trusts it nor rises to the demands of his phantasmagorical ambitions. I mean... How about Joe Morgenstern, Wall Street Journal? Mr. Hardy does have a few sensationally lurid moments. I think that must be where he craps himself. But the stuff of high drama isn't there. What a waste and what a downer for Mr. Trank. Ty uh, Burr, lastly. Watching the star wheel around the estate wielding a solid gold Tommy gun while dressed in adult diapers is to witness a craziness that feels uniquely American and perhaps even more geographically precise than that. I really like Ty Burr, but surprisingly, he actually liked the way he gave like a two and a half star. So... Uh, one may believe for Capone, avoid it and watch it at your own peril. Mount Rushmore. So we moved from Capone to the Mount Rushmore of bad biopics. And to make it clear, about a year ago, we did the Mount Rushmore of great biopics. So this is a nice little bookend to us giving some props in the past. And by the way, if you're wondering where Scott Rogowski is, uh, Rags right now under a contract dispute. As he mentioned last week, uh, I haven't paid him yet, and we, we really don't have the funds for it. So unless we can solve this, Rags time is going to be on hiatus for a while. Hopefully that fixes for next time. But for now, we're in a contract dispute. To the Mount Rushmore of bad biopics after Scott Rogowski's bad behavior. Some of the worst movies of all time when it comes to biopics. I'm going to kick this off with Alexander. My man Scott Feinberg was very generous to Oliver Stone on his podcast, but there's no denying Alexander is one of the worst movies of Oliver Stone's career. Absolute disaster. Nobody cares. Nobody was interested in it. It was boring. It was long. It was pointless. It was lurid. Oliver Stone tried to defend it. because no, it was good. It, was, it should have been longer. It should have been three hours. No, no, Oliver. Movie sucked. Let's face it. Nobody wants to watch Alexander. That's a bad movie. Moving on. Beyond the Sea. Now, I love Bobby Darren, specifically Beyond the Sea. He used to great effect in Goodfellas. But Kevin Spacey had this terrible idea. So he, like me, loves these old school crooners. And he wants to play Bobby Darren. But of course, he's too old at this point. It's 2004. So Kevin Spacey plays Bobby Darren in the movie with like no de-aging, no makeup. It's just like, oh, like why is this old man playing a young Bobby Darren? And the thought is, well, the story's being told in flashback. And so Bobby Darren is picturing himself as he is now. 
I know, sounds stupid, right? That's exactly what it was. Aside from Beyond the Sea, which is a great song and a great moment of the movie, Spacey does not give one of his better performances. Again, I appreciate he loves the crooners like being in 50s music, but he actually got a Golden Globe nomination. People often point out The Tourist being nominated for Best Comedy Musical is like one of the, or maybe it was Best Drama, I have no idea. The fact The Tourist was even nominated for a Best Picture is a joke. One of the worst nominations ever, though. I remember Beyond the Sea. I believe Spacey was up for Best Actor, Musical Comedy. And I go, come on. Nobody wanted to watch Beyond the Sea. That movie's not good. So that is also my list of the bad biopics. I'm kind of tempted to get Jay Edgar in there, Leonardo DiCaprio and Clint Eastwood, because that wasn't a good film from either of those two, but that would be a little bit harsh. I'll instead take aim at two of my favorites, David Mamet, the great writer-director, and Al Pacino, my favorite actor, Phil Spector, just a mess. Came out in 2013. Again, Spector, great music, love what he was responsible for, but the movie is not interesting or engaging. Pacino's hair is the only notable thing about this movie. I'm shocked that Mamet did it. I don't know what he was interested in about. Again, I just don't know what the point of it was. Phil Spector apparently had some great music, was a bad guy, killed somebody on jail. What is the point of this? But, but Pacino's hair is definitely impressive, and maybe that's the only redeemable part of this movie. Those are three for you. One more, I kind of want to put The Conqueror in there, Genghis Khan. I know my friend E60 would love me to put in The Doors with Jim Morrison. He thought that was pretty bad. But the last one I'm going to go with is Wired, John Belushi. I mean, everyone thought it was just a terrible biopic. John Belushi, one of the great comedians of all time. Rob Lemley, one of his favorites. So what the hell, I'll put Wired in there as well. The book itself, people said Woodward focused way too much on Belushi and the bad stuff about him, the, the copious drug use, the booze, rather than his brilliance. And the biopic obviously follows up with the way that the book did. So that'll be my last nomination there. The Mount Rushmore, a bad biopic. So Joe, what do you got? Okay, so first off, I have 2009, Notorious, the biggest, smallest documentary. It is the worst thing I have ever seen. I guess the actor who played Biggie Smalls was pretty good but the writing's so cliche at one point puffy gets fired from his record label and he goes why do we fall so that we can get back up they literally wrote that into the movie that was a real line from that movie so i'm gonna go notorious 2009 i'll back you up i will put the conqueror in where john wayne plays genghis khan in 1956 i will also go with little buddha where Keanu Reeves plays the most handsome Buddha of all the Buddhas to ever Buddha. And I'm not too familiar with uh, my with Buddhism, but he is explaining how, you know, he's hearing this person play uh, a fiddle or a guitar on the riverbanks, and if it's too tight, it sounds bad. If it's too loose, it doesn't make a, a sound, and you need to walk the middle part. But it's Keanu Reeves doing it post Bill and Ted. It's the worst thing I have ever seen. Um, and then my last one, this might be a hot take, so get your ice pack ready, but Braveheart, 1995, I hate Braveheart. I don't like Mel Gibson generally. His accent's terrible. Storytelling isn't great. It has iconic scenes, but it, I think now it's just so dated and just, it's just not great. It's just not great in general. It's very Hollywood production. So my four are Little Buddha, Braveheart, Notorious, and The Conqueror. I like your list even more than mine because the mention of Little Buddha is fantastic. I mean, I've never seen it. I remember the cover. Keanu Reeves is in it. I know it did not do well. came out in 93, but I love the fact you put it. And I loved you got the Stones to mention Braveheart. My friend Bernie, I mean, it's, it's his favorite movie of all time. He just loves Scottish people, loves kilts, loves William Wallace. I've seen it once, had no desire to ever watch it again. I think it's generally a pretty overrated best picture. I don't think that was a great year for movies, by the way, 95, but a generally overrated best picture. 
did have some great action sequences. And just as I would say of all of his films, he definitely is very good when it comes to action sequences and directing those, whether it's Apocalypto or that uh, most recent war film he did. But I love the fact you're coming after Braveheart. Good for you, Joe. Take it down. It's about time someone did. And let me be clear. I have nothing against kilts. The kilts in that movie are through the roof. 10 out of 10 on the kilts. But everything else about it, particularly Mel Gibson's accent, is a zero. So Braveheart is unequivocally on my list. I love it. I love. Well, he's listen. He's got a lot of issues off uh, off the field, so to speak. Uh, Anti-Semitic remarks. He's a drunk. He's a bit of a mess. So you know what? Fine. We're gonna take out. Uh, we'll take out Mel Gibson this time here on Cinephile. And so this concludes the shortest Cinephile ever. No guests. No Rogowski. Just me and Joe getting it done. Emmys. Tiff. Capone and a Mount Rushmore of bad biopics. Cadence 13 has said to us, our production company, by the way, that generally speaking, this is pre-pandemic, 37 to 47 minutes is your ideal length for a podcast. So look at that. We even came in under. Normally, I think we average about 50 minutes. Last week, we hit an hour. So guess what, folks? We're actually heeding some advice. We went under 37 minutes getting it done for all of you. Next time here on Cinephile, Joe's working on some guests. I mentioned Glenn Kinney, the film critic of Made Men. I'm probably going to finish that book, The 30th Anniversary of Goodfellas, so that will be reviewed on next week's podcast. And potentially, cross your fingers, we're going to try to get Aunt Viv. That's right, Aunt Viv from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, hopefully coming soon to Cinephile. Thanks so much for checking us out. Please do tweet me. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Please do support the GM Shuffle, the other podcast Joe and I do with Cadence 13, our NFL podcast. And until then, I'll see you at the movies.